Hello. Hello. Once again, you join us on Shite and Sound. It's a podcast where I, you, the shite. And me, Finn, sound, Nicholas. We talk about our childhood. Last week, we unpacked, you know, the different flavors of crown we ate as a child. That Mainly me. Mm-hmm. I just always thought that the, the dark purple, not black, but, but dark purple always had a certain... Je ne sais quoi. Well, what you learned was that if you leave the crowns out in the sun, they get all soft. And, of course, there's uh, our episode two weeks ago. You, you remember what we discussed? Certainly do. I remember it like it was two weeks ago, yeah. which is to say uh, not at all. Funny joke. It's a, it's about how uh, memory distorts childhood. Exactly. How can we really was, remember them? And before we did that, we did a long, we did a long mini series at, at your behest. So it would be very rude of me to to label the subject matter of it. Before that, we did seventeen episode mini series about our favorite Irish uh, young adult fantasy authors from the early two thousands. I mean, it was largely you reading verbatim all of the Artemis Fowl and Skullduggery Pleasant. You know, for the whole thing, I was like. Do I include Rick Reardon? Like, I know he's American, but he's got, like he's obviously got Irish ancestry, and like, yeah, like he's he's working in the same sort of area as John Coulter and Derek Landy were. Was I putting up metal because I was riveted? Always loved to hear from our fans, our little shites, shite heads, <laughs> shite heads, and they come in sounders. That's it. We've loved you talking about the minutia of childhood. We loved the you know two day. <laughs> 48-hour-long episode on scabs. <laughs> that, Some people did think we were talking about people who crossed their union lines, but... Uh, well, I, I think that there are points where we spoke to both subjects. Yeah, no, it's like if, if you watch The Wizard of Oz while listening to Dark Side of the Moon, it sort of syncs up at various points. We love this, but we'd love to get you on real issues. People remember way back um, our first episode recounting in detail the experiences of our birth. From our perspective, episode 15 was the long interview with Chris Morris about the Peter Geddon episode of, <laughs> of Brass Eye. Uh, yeah, and who can forget when we had old Jason Gunn in. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave quite a confessional interview about how all those moments where he was, uh, you know, defining our, on ch- TV. <laughs> Whoa, defining our childhood. Um he he was just smacked out of his head on Robina, <laughs> <laughs> just right in a sugar rush that no one could come down from. And and of course there was the follow up episode where we had Thingy on to talk about childhood sexuality, <laughs> being as he is the defining moment of sexual awakening for many young people in the country of Aotearoa. But um, I, I don't know why we we don't normally explain this much about, <laughs> about this previous episodes. <laughs> we like to think that we're children at heart, uh, specifically, literally in Finn's case because of that transplant. Yeah, did it myself. <laughs> You've never spoken about that. Go, yep. Okay. Go on. <laughs> Which part did you do yourself? Well, the same thing is, you know, I, obviously my heart was failing. Yeah. I was diagnosed as a child with, uh, 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 well, I said as a child, I mean, uh, two years ago. No, uh, yeah, um, no. But you were again, also. I like to think of myself as a but child. When, but uh, when I, you were born, the the doctor looked at you and said, I diagnosed this yeah, person a as child. a child. Yeah. I was diagnosed about two years ago with having what they call uh, con- congenital heart fuckedness. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're like, 
mm-hmm. mate, you're gonna need a new heart. And I was like, okay, make sure you give me like a good one, All right? Luckily, there had been a school bus crash <laughs> like that day, the day I was diagnosed, and so and so they were able to like just do the whole the, the, the whole no, waiting list because you were in that bus crash. You were the only survivor. Yeah, I was, I was the driver. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was diagnosed with con- with, con- with congenital heart fuckness. I had to go back to my job as a school bus driver. Yeah, I crashed the bus on accident. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so there were so, so many, like, good, useful hearts at the same time that they, they would do the whole, they could do the whole waiting list for heart transplants. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I was, I was, of course, last on the list. So I got, I got, I got, I got the last one. On, I got the last one. But he, like, took me into the operating room. I'm laughing with you. I, I, I hate this bit so much. <laughs> it's good. It's, good. it's not a bit. It's, it's a true story. They took me into the operating room. I was I was lying there. They wheeled in this heart and like a bucket of dry ice or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then then there was a fire alarm and like all the dogs had like like run out. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm just waiting here. I don't like waiting around for stuff. I prefer action to 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 stillness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is why I uh, think that Bella Tar's a hack, and uh, <laughs> only, and only watch films by Michael Bay. They like to go out of a room. I was like, well, oh, I'm I'm waiting here. The heart's waiting there. It's not getting any fresher. So I took a scalpel, sliced over my own chest, ripped open my rib cage. Yeah, you spatchcocked yourself. Yeah, and pulled pulled out my own still beating heart. Yeah. Like, like in the song Bad Out of Hell, took this uh, uh, child's heart, uh, put it back inside myself, and then just sort of like, just put it, pushed it all back in. I'm, I'm still very ill, but uh, mom the mend. Um, I've got some pretty big news for you, Finn. Yeah? You know how you know that I'm under arrest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we joke, uh, <laughs> but you know how um, you don't listen to podcasts. No, you you refuse to engage with uh, new media, only vinyl records and uh, light novels. Yeah, am I taking a painting or a or a wood carving? Maybe an etching. You love a song sequence. You know how occasionally in public people come up and be like, "Wow, are you Shite and Sound from Shite and Sound?" That, yeah, that really relates to. I've learned a lot about my childhood. Those are all actors that I've paid. This has not been podcast. This this whole thing has been a, a sting. Okay. I'm Detective Uthashite from the SSBCIT. That's the Suspicious School Bus Crash Investigation Team. Normally when school buses crash, the bus driver <laughs> doesn't insist on flipping it. <laughs> Now you've been nicked. How does it feel? You know, I'm not. I'm not super happy about it. <laughs> about frankly. the the murdering. No, or... about 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 getting nicked by the Rosses. <laughs> Please, we prefer Bobbies. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm just saying. I've just got a text message from my arrest team, and they're about three and a half hours away. <laughs> <laughs> what if we pick a subject at random? Watch two films about step parents, and then talk about them on the podcast. Does, does that sound like a good idea to you? Sure. I knew you'd say that. Get on the ground, <laughs> punk. Hello and welcome to Shite and Sound, the podcast where two comedians watch one of the masterpieces of world cinema and then follow it up with a critically reviled film that is similar in some way. Maybe they share themes, plot, actors, or director. We want to see if counterpointing these two films can bring out some new information or insights. On this episode, we watch number 66 on the side of the sound list, Night of a Hunter. Charles Lawton's beautifully atmospheric 
Southern Gothic Christian morality thriller. Our second film this week is My Stepmother is an Alien, Richard Benjamin's ludicrously horny slapstick and astrophysics family comedy. Night of the Hunter, well, adapted mm. from um, a book by the beautifully named Davis Grubb, <laughs> adapted by James A.G., directed by Chuck Lawton, mm-hmm, Charles yeah. Lawton. You may know him from his performance as, oh, just terrifying beast man, <laughs> just a horrifying mound of uh, horrific flesh in, let's say, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Not, not the animated one. He was in... Witness for the Prosecution, Billy Wilder film. He was in Mutiny on the Bounty, not the Anthony Hopkins one. Spartacus. He was in, oh, yeah, he was in Spartacus. Stan- Stanley Kubrick one. Yeah. I was going to rewatch that last night, but I was like, no, it's three hours long. I want to watch Irma Vip instead, and I did that. So, yeah, Night of the Hunter, Charles Lawton's only work as a director. No. He'd been a famous actor for, like, 20 years at that point, probably. Yeah, yeah. Started yeah. on The Stage. Yeah. In the the theatre. Yeah, yeah. He, he he put his mark on some of the old Shakespeare characters, quickly made a name for himself first in the Ook, the the formerly United Kingdom, uh, where, you know, he'd be in films, he'd be Henry the Eighth. Yeah, he was in films by Alexander Corder. Yeah. Yeah. He was in uh, Hobson's Choice. A movie that uh, my granddad tried to uh, watch me once but we couldn't find a good version of it on YouTube. Oh, no, oh. So instead we watched uh, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, The Trouble with Harry, which is on YouTube in full. The first film was Shirley MacLaine. The Delight. Yeah, good one. Uh, uh, one of the last ones for quite a while. Mm. Yeah. But then, you know, when they came back, they were all kind of overshadowed by my favourite U2 song. He would transform himself through makeup. Mm. To, you know, he was the hunchback of Notre Dame. But also even looking at Witness for the Prosecution, meaning on the bounty private life of Henry VIII, he is so rarely himself. The closest that I think I've seen is the old Dark House, the James Whale right, film, yeah. um, which is basically just because he's not wearing makeup and he's not he's not transformed himself. Uh, he's just just pranking about so having is, a good is, old is, time in an old Dark House. Yeah, is he one of the scary ones in that movie, or is he no. being scared? He's being scared, right? But like his trademark to me is that he would play these seemingly monstrous figures. With a desperate and often quite sad humanity, like the the thing that is telling about his Henry VIII is that he is someone who is very clear. Like he's still a monster. Henry VIII is not a good man. No, having a good time, just getting rid of people. But Lawton really the Church of England. <laughs> Lawton- no, no respect for the papacy. <laughs> Lawton really forefronts his kind of uh, desperation, his search for happiness. And how empty that is. And like so much of our modern take on Hunchback of Notre Dame as a story is down to his performance. Quasimodo could so easily be a character who is just monstrous. He is just Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Barely human. But it is the, these scenes of him playing opposite the, the character Esmeralda. I cannot remember the actress's name being like, I will protect you. And I, I can't hear the sadness of it all. Um, is really strong and it is interesting how Night of the Hunter is a film that is about 
a, a very monstrous character. Absolutely. Uh, that's right, Shelley Winters. This is a call-out post. Uh, Reverend Harry Powell, played by Robert Mitchum, who uh, is in Cape Fear. Yep. And Cape Fear. And the Yakuza. And then he joined the Yakuza. <laughs> He's no. an honorary member after the movie The Yakuza came out. Um, and very specifically, he's fighting the Yakuza. Yeah, the but they Yakuza. liked it so much that they made him a member. <laughs> of course, like Enemy Below, he was uh, Marlo in Farewell, My Lovely. Mitchum's character, Henry Powell, what does he gets up to some pranks? Yeah, he, he's a pretty kooky character. <laughs> he's a uh, silly, is what yeah. I call him. He is a, a, a raving religious fanatic and a misogynist serial killer. Yeah, he he uh, is going down the Ohio River, finding widows, marrying them, taking their money, and then killing them. Yeah, and he's driving along in his car, doing little monologues to God about how, uh, you know, Lord, I, I know you hate all those feminine things, those womanly things, those little lacy things. He is just, like, made of twitchy, seething menace. <laughs> well, and, and just, like, the idea of women. This is after the opening shot of the film is like an overhead shot of a bunch of uh, children standing out behind a house playing hide and seek and you see them all like running off in different directions. One of them runs over to one of those like diagonal like cellar doors that you see uh, like opens uh, into a staircase and a kid who is doing the seeking comes over and finds him and it cuts to like close up shot of inside a cellar door and there's, there's just like a woman's leg there and then it cuts to him in the car and you're like oh. I think what the theory of montage is telling me is that these two images are connected in some way. <laughs> so you're saying that that shot revealing a dead woman, cutting to a man talking to God about how he hates women and looks forward to killing more of them, is implying some kind of a connection. I, I think it might be. Uh, I mean... If Eisenstein's told me anything, if I know my Kuleshov, if but- those are the two Russian film theorists I know, <laughs> don't quiz me. <laughs> we meet her just being like, Shit, I'm evil. (laughs) And, like, how absolutely justified to himself he is. He believes that this is what God wants him to do, to continue to spread God's word. And then it includes, like, an incredible match cut to him being like, oh, and all those women out there in the world flaunting their goods, the slattens, and then cutting to a woman doing a burlesque Yeah, show. it comes to him, like, sitting in the room, which is, like, the horniest trumpet sound you've ever heard. <laughs> but, like, but, like, but it actually sounds like a trumpet, because it's a trumpet. But do your impression no. of a trumpet now. Do it. No. Do it. No. We're not continuing this podcast until you do it. Baker Street. Baker Street. <laughs> Baker Street it's is a saxophone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it comes to him inside this burlesque theater, and he's just sitting there, always looking at this, looking at this hot woman. He's just so, so mad. mad. He's just clenching his fists and his his knuckles are tattooed. One hand says love, the other says hate. What is this? Do the right thing. Because Bill, because Bill Nunn also has the same thing. Do the right thing. As he, does Robert De Niro and Kate B. And Sideshow Barber in The Simpsons. Yeah, he stuffs his hand says hate. He stuffs it inside his coat pocket. I mean, you see, like, a flick knife just, like, pop out through the, through the coat, and you're like, that's a, that's a metaphor for, for an erect penis. Yeah. And you're like, what is this, North by Northwest? Um, I think it, this film is more, we'll get to North by Northwest, but a, a switchblade is, I think, a more subtle metaphor for an erect penis than a train going into a tunnel. Yeah, just plowing a tunnel. <laughs> Two things to notice. Uh, the first is, of course, he's sitting in the audience of this burlesque performance. Everyone around him, totally dark, basically outlines him lit 
by a single strip of light across his face, mm-hmm. which A, would make it very difficult to see the stage, but also B, like, this is the point where we go, like, oh, yeah, that's right. Every single frame <laughs> of this film is shot like the climax of the third man. <laughs> yeah. Like, is this Ben Elton's first novel? Because the lighting is stark. The other thing to notice is that we've kind of learned everything we will know about this character. He yeah. is a, a vicious juggernaut of seething hatred and implicit violence. Yeah, just a compulsive misogynist who, through his like religious fervor, like forces himself into situations where he can allow himself to be angry at women. And just exerts total control over all situations yeah. uh, in a really horrific way. And I think the really notable thing about that is that that's not a Charles Lawton character. Charles Lawton playing this role would be about, like, the hollow desperation of this man. Yeah. Whereas Mitchum, who was in a hundred films, always has this ideal of masculinity. Well, like, a certain era's ideal of masculinity. In Enemy Below, he's a U.S. Navy captain on a battleship fighting a U-boat captain, and it's all like, oh, I'm going to do my damn job, but I respect the guy on the U-boat underneath me. And yeah. The Yakuza, which Finn mentioned because I watched The Yakuza yesterday. It's a film. It's Sidney Pollack joined. Yeah. To log line it is that Robert Mitchum, The Five Bloods, is, except it's Japan and World War Two. Right. But it, but it goes back to, you know, make everything right and, of course, fight the Yakuza. In that, he's all about, I've just got to do the, I've always got to do the right thing. He's steadfast. He's very much in the John Wayne model there are times in the past where he's played a villain the initial cape being yeah. the obvious example but in that he is playing a, a psychotic monster mm. essentially whereas in this his performance in night of the hunter is so much more in line with his hero roles it is just that he's doing terrible things things that the film know is terrible mm. which just is like my thesis on this film is like, I I'm, not, I'm not a Robert Mitchum truther. I'm not here to be like, Robert Mitchum is bad, actually. But I think of, like, the great all-time performances. I, I think this is one. Hmm. I think this is the one where you can most clearly draw a line to, like, it being someone being incredibly well-deployed. Like, Charles Lawton exactly knows how to use Robert Mitchum's yeah. kind of idealized and what we would now recognize as toxic masculinity as the villain of a film, as someone who has these profound beliefs and will stick to them. And all that's different is that we don't believe the beliefs as opposed to the Yakuza where the film is like, yeah, Japan is pretty crazy. And it would be nice if Robert Mitchum could go sort out that stuff. Clean the place up. Um, Do they have a scene where someone's dick gets chopped off? No. Okay, doesn't sound like a Japanese movie worth watching then. What, like, Love exposure. Yeah, but like, where in your the other ones? Where in your name is someone's dick cut off? Uh, in the realm of the senses. <laughs> um, those are the only ones I can remember right now. Weathering with you, <laughs> my neighbor Totoro. Someone probably gets their dick cut off in Princess Mononoke. That, yeah. that movie's crazy. Those lepers, right? Also, there's just like multiple scenes where Ashitaka just like cuts someone's hand off and blood goes everywhere. And I feel like Lupin the Third has been castrated at some point in his chronology. Outside of the like Miyazaki Lupin, like those movies get super fucking weird and gross and violent. I would absolutely think at least someone gets castrated in one of the Lupin movies. Good. Yeah. 
because if there's one thing that should happen to men, <laughs> yeah, subjugation. <laughs> we discussed this. Go back to a three and a half hour long episode on Twin Peaks oh. and, and Blue Velvet for my discussion of why men should be subjugated. Uh, if you don't want to go back, I just want to be clear. It's not sexual. Nor is it ironic. I'm kidding on the square. Like, I, every bit of it I believe, but I don't yeah, think you're, you're it's right. you making fun of that Ruben Ostland movie? The Square? Oh, that's right. The follow-up to Force Majeure? Yeah, the winner of the Palm Door. Yeah. Haven't not- seen either of them. Heard they're both good. Check them out eventually. Yeah, the Square has that weirdly European sense of humour, where it is like some of it is great, and some is just like, oh, let's just laugh at a mentally ill man. Sounds good. Uh, John and Pearl, they're just hanging out on their like rural uh, like Ohio farm. When their dad comes driving up, he's holding a giant wad of cash and a gun, and he's like, uh, i got to hide all this money, I just killed some people and did a robbery. And then tells his son, hey, you're the man of the house now, I'm going to go to jail and probably uh, get murdered by the state. You can't tell anyone where the money is, especially not your mother and your sister, because they're women and we all know what they're like. Of course, we do know that since he's played by Jim Graves, that after prison, he would heavily reform himself. And go on to lead the IMF in the Mission Impossible TV series. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we didn't mention that while he's at the burlesque parlor, uh, Robert Mitchum gets arrested for car theft that and is sentenced to 30 days in prison. The police come along, they, they arrest the father, they've got him around, they're holding guns to him, and you see, like, a shot of John standing off, and he's like, no, no, like, leave him alone. Yeah. And, he's very and, upset, but his dad's getting arrested. Yeah. And Billy Chapman, as John Harper, as the boy, is, is great. Yep. It's a yee level kid performance. He, uh, incredible. Didn't do much else. No. He did eight films total, three films in the like two or three years before this. He did two other films in 1955, and he did one film in 1956, and then nothing. I mean, once you've been in Night of the Hunter, a film that bombed so badly that its director never made another film. Yeah. Where, can, where else can the, you go? The Ishtar of its time. And he's very much the Warren Beatty of his time. Uh, except a small Aryan child. Pearl is played by Sally Jane Bruce, who does a great job of being like four. It's the Drew Barrymore and E.T. thing of you've got a good performance by tricking that small child. So they're in, in prison. Ben, their dad, meets up with the Reverend. Yeah, they are cellmates. Their dad has been sentenced to death. He's going to be executed in, in like a few days. Because uh, this is before they had like the appeals process. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, he's sentenced to death. Maybe like a week later, we're going to hang you. What? This is America, the greatest democracy on earth. Yeah. One of the things that I really love about this film is the like, way that this film looks at like at state-sanctioned executions is the exact same way it looks at serial killers and lynch mobs. It is equally disgusted by like all of those things. Yeah. Which I think is uh, good. So the reverend finds out that he had some money. He hears him talking in his sleep one night. Ben says something about some money being hidden. And Robert Mitchum is like talking to him in his sleep, trying to coax more information out of him. And then Ben wakes up and punches him in the face. And Robert Mitchum falls off the top bunk. Really would have been a lot simpler if he just punched him in like a bit harder and he just died then. Or he just like falling kind of weird and like, oh, now, now he's paralyzed. If you're convicted of a crime with the death penalty, why not then just, just do every fucking crime? Just like, just kill that guy and... They're going to kill you, yep. you know? Why don't you just purge? I don't know. I mean, do you, you want to try it? Okay. So what crime has the... De- it's treason, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you have to do, you'd have to do treason in New Zealand to get to get killed. Okay, so recently... Pre- and like, even then, I don't think it, <laughs> it's... It's like a maybe. Oh, yeah. You have to um, do like a big treason. 
Well, okay, so let me just have a go. Prince Philip recently died, and I'd just like to say a good... The flag outside my house is still at full mast. Yeah. <laughs> Take that. And still, of course, every day I wake up, I walk over to my shrine. Being soaked with tears. <laughs> and pets. Yeah, I've been buying a new... I've had to buy a new mattress every day. Give a full tongue to my life-size portrait of the Queen. And then give little pats on the heads to all four of her kids. Because they're all four of them. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect people with great friends. No sweat. (laughs) Uh, Birdie Steptoe is introduced. Yeah. Their weird uncle who just like speaks in like southerner gibberish. He lives in a house that's on the water. Every day he waves at the steamships that come past. And he's like. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> and, and the boat goes honk honk, and he's like, yeah. <laughs> he does speak very much like the noises. Like Boomhauer, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a bit like what I presume the internet dial tone would have sounded like in acoustic. Yeah. He has a talk with John as John's come to see him about, like, oh, you know, it's tough having to keep a secret of where all the money's hidden. And Uncle Bertie's like, you can't go telling them women there, there's a, a top burden man's got to be out, telling the women about the stuff. Yeah, and he's like, oh, I'm sad because my wife died. She don't like it when I drink, but I drink, but it's going to be with a pepper. Yeah, he sits down at a table with his cup of coffee, and he's going to pour some whiskey into it. And he looks at a picture of his wife. Oh, she's been dead for 15 doggone years now. She's just still bothering me. And he just turns a picture face down. And then Robert Mitchum shows up at the ice cream shop where with Shirley Winters, Shirley Winters, we should we should note as a a great actress and b just professionally bad at choosing husbands between this and Lolita. Yep, she works in ice cream shop, and if if you run an ice cream shop, there's no better name to have than Icy Spoon. Yep, because um, it's run by a guy whose last by a guy whose last name is Spoons. Yeah, Walt Spoon, just Walt Spoon. Spoon, Walt Spoon. White, right, sorry, the Icy is his the, wife. The, the S is the is the owned by Spoon. So Robert Mitchum is in the ice cream shop, and written upon his hands are the words love and hate. Um, and then he does a speech, which we're playing now, blah, blah, blah. A lot of it's visual, so you're missing something. Yeah, no, I don't. I, yeah. You said, I'm going to play it now. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. not really, because it's kind of like, the, here's love and here's hate, and they're always fighting, but love always wins. And it is just aggressively sinister. <laughs> yeah, even though I think this film is pretty, like, undeniably Christian, it does... It's about, like, the, the moral philosophy of Christianity, which is, like, the bits of Christianity which essentially boil down to uh, socialism. We, we should all be good to each other, and being nice is not necessarily about being kind, it's about doing the right thing. Whereas all the villainous people in this film, and all the dark moments are about people taking the imagery of it and using it to justify these, their their lust for inner violence. Yeah, there's a scene like near the end of the movie where Robert Mitchum is kids go on the run for a while, and they get found by a woman who runs like an orphanage, played by Lillian Gish from Broken Blossoms. Yeah, and eventually Robert Mitchum catches up with them. He goes to the house, but he kind of like r- reveals himself to be too threatening like immediately, and so L- Lillian Gish like chases him off with a shotgun. Then later that night, sh- she's out on the porch with a shotgun. And he's sitting on like a fence post and he's singing some hymn. I think it's like bringing in the sheaves. And Lillian Gish, who was also like very Christian, she's sitting on a porch with a shotgun. She starts singing along with him. And it's like these two kind of like competing versions of Christianity represents. And like, I think that's interesting and good. 
Yeah. For a film made in 1955, I think it is the best kind of Christian, which is one that believes in the actual moral tenets of Christianity, which Tent- is... Tenets. <laughs> Not tenants. Jesus was gone for a lot more than three days. He was just being inverted for a lot of them. So he does this whole show of like good versus evil, a big display of dominance and an, a kind of attempted seduction of Shelley Winters, who's a woman racked with guilt. She yeah. feels like, you know, her, her husband was was a criminal and she is not truly supporting her kids enough. They fall quickly into a relationship and then get married. And pretty soon he's like, uh, you know what the most important part of being a stepfather is just standing in menacing high contrast lighting situations over children and asking where money is, you yeah. know? And he says to Shirley Winters, I was, you know, in the old Bailey with your husband and he told me where he put the money. He wrapped it around a rock, chucked it in the lake. Ah, uh, but that's a lie. Uh, he's just trying to find out where it is. And so, yeah, he starts being like, so, hey, kids, how you doing? Ah, so happy to be your stepfather. Also, where's, where's the money? And John is like, nah. I ain't never gonna tell you where the money. Fucking, what fucking accent was that? <laughs> Jesus. Pearl, it seems at times, kind of wants to. She, she's much more, like, trusting of, of Robert Mitchum. I, is this controversial? I think four-year-olds are fucking idiots. Yeah, I think they're dumb as a bag of fucking rocks. John feels an incredible attachment to his father yeah. uh, and, and still grieves his passing. Even when Robert Mitchum tries, now me and your dad talked and he told me to tell you to tell me anything <laughs> you want, any secrets, treat me like I'm your dad. And John is still like, No, you know, this is 15, 20 minutes of the film. And what they are are these incredibly high contrast. Like, it's less like grayscale than it is actually monochrome. Like, things are either blooming white or the void darkness. And everything traced in kind of beautiful relief as this just towering monster stalks through this house yeah. terrorizing this family after the scene where robert mitchum and shelly winters get married there is a scene on their wedding night where robert mitchum is lying in bed and shelly winters comes into the room and she's like so happy that she's she's married this this great man who wants to like take care of her and her family she comes into the room wearing like a night dress basically without even like turning around in the bed just says like stop don't get into that. I can, I can smell your lust from here. And starts like berating her about like the like place of women and families and, and how her role is, is to raise her kids. And he's, he's going to be there to help with that, but you know, he's, he's not going to sleep with her because he finds women repulsive and just wants to murder them and take their money. He makes her like stand in front of a mirror and just like berates her for like how sinful her body is. Horrifying scenes. Real and, good. Yeah. It's the same tone Robert Mitchum takes when he's telling off people in the Navy. It's not Robert Mitchum terrorizing a family. Right, yeah. It is how the film is positioning him, enlightening him, and that he is this malevolent force. The logline of the film is also like, what if the Robert Mitchum hero character was the villain? But his escalation, he begins to just outright threaten the kids and chase them around. Shelley Winters overhears this and is like, oh, so you don't know where the money is, but it's okay. I forgive you. I, I've sinned so much in the past. You're, you're here to, to 
redeem me. You're mm. you're you're here to bring God back into my life, and uh, he kills her. <laughs> yeah, the scene in their bedroom lit incredibly, and also the design of his room is like something out of German Expressionist. Yeah, film. it's Escher Gothic. Yeah, right. The design of his fucking room is so good and it's so weird. Just all, all the all the angles are crazy. It seems both like tiny and massive at the same time. But then the camera like moves back the like back of a void and there's just all, all this like black before the room actually starts. So good. It is at points really quite hard to tell what aspect ratio this film is because so much of it is you're you're peering through darkness, mm. these kind of heavily vignetted images. It's beautiful and people talk about it a lot as taking like silent film aesthetic and applying them to a sound film and I buy that. But I also think there is a theatricality in the best way to it. It is never pretending to be a representation of reality. Yeah. That escalates as we go. You always have a sense of it being a stage. And I think that is a really interesting thing to do because it forces us onto the onto what is happening rather than why or how. The literal rules of this world don't necessarily need to apply and it can work in a much more kind of dreamlike way. Because yeah, he, he kills her, he dumps her body in the stolen car at the bottom of the pond and, and you get some just all-time great shots yeah. of, of her body floating in the car under the water and it yeah it's is fuck i'm just my brain is trying to find a joke but it's just fucking top notch yeah it's it's one of like the shots in all of film is her in the car uh, underwater well and and then a fishing line comes down Mm. and and so you go from this massive image this flooded car this, uh, this floating body this tiny detail that snags on the car and it's Uncle Birdie. Yeah, and the camera like follows the line up out of, out of the water. Called, you know, it's the Uncle Birdie in his boat. In this especially, but all throughout the film, like people who have cited this film as an influence are like Fassbender, Altman, obviously Scorsese, because yeah. his Cape Fear is half a remake of this. Right, yeah. Um, and you can see in just how, like, while the pace may be different to modern films, how much it leans on visual language as a narrative device. Mm. and But yeah, Uncle Birdie Stepto uh, uh, sees this car, but then he panics because he thinks people will think he did it and mm. he doesn't tell anyone. And at the same time, Robert Mitchum is in the ice cream parlor being like, oh yeah, she ran away to live a life of sin. She usually ran off with a, with a drummer. <laughs> right. Oh, no, 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 he says that later. But yeah. still, that, I mean, who who hasn't lost someone to a drummer? Who did you lose to a drummer? My my dad was murdered by Bill Rieflin <laughs> from from Ministry and uh, King Crimson. But the people who run the ice cream place buy it immediately. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, she ran away, and like that's what I'm talking about. And I think in a film that was gesturing more towards realism or further from symbolism, as this film does, you would be like, these characters are idiots. Why don't they buy it? But in this, you're like, no, of course, because he is this monumental distorting force who can kind of rewrite reality around them. And he's also a preacher, so he is someone who automatically gets respect and deference. Yeah. Back at the house, the reverend chases the kids around the house, chases them down to the basement, because that's where they say the money is hidden, essentially lying to him. Yeah. He looks under the stone where they say it is, yeah. and he realizes it's not there, 
he pulls out his knife and he's like, I'm going to cut you. Then uh, John finally like gives in and says the money is hidden inside Pearl's doll that she's been carrying around the whole movie. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's why the doll gets so many closer. And he goes to reach for the doll. But then uh, John like knocks over a shelf that's above his head and a shelf and a bunch of glass jars fall on Robert Mitchum. And he goes, ooh, ooh, ooh. I mean, like tiny birds fly around his head. Yeah. And uh, Big Lump grows, but he pushes it back into his head. Yeah. They run to, to Uncle Steptoe to Birdie, but he is... He's drunk himself into a stupor. Because of finding the body. Yeah. Uh, and so they get in their dad's boat and start going down the Ohio River. Or seemingly, like, a fortnight, yeah. three weeks. And this is where the film really leans into an abstractness. Yeah. The Reverend uh, is chasing them on a horse that he stole. There's a scene later, back at the ice cream shop, they've got a letter from him saying... I took the kids down to see my sister. We're all having a great time. Nothing to worry about. The wife is like, oh, see, it's it's all good. You you used it. You thought the gypsies came and took them all. He's like, oh, the gypsies did come and steal that man's horse. They, they killed him as well, which is another, I mean, like seems, seems like kind of a throwaway line, but there's also like I think more stuff going on in there about how like they're like scapegoating minorities. It's this white Christian preacher who is murder and thief around here. Well, and considering that it is like the first thing we learn about this film is that there is a man and he kills people and thinks he's doing the right thing, but mm-hmm. it's clearly wrong. Take like the ice cream store owners uh, who are like like a cartoon of middle Americanness, yeah, and then be like, I can do it. Like it is. It's barely subtext, is yeah. what I'm saying. It's not, this is not, and, and I love it because it's not a subtle film. And that, yeah. like for 1955, the, the things we're talking that this film is saying are not subtle things no. in the film. And it is interesting to just go back a little in like how the moment of Shelley Winters being like, you have been sent to save me. I've done such sin. You've been sent to redeem me. It is not a subtle moment. She plays it very well because she's right yeah um and a, an incredible actress and no one does a bad job in this film you need something that obvious in a film where all the other levels of meaning are that obvious you don't have a moment of her the revelation of her logic and her humanity that's that big it will seem like there's a bit of blaming the mum in this yeah. and like this film obviously has a very like its relationship with the idea of parents is that it it both loves and fears fathers and has in many ways, a much more complicated relationship with mothers. Yeah. They, they have two mothers throughout the film. There's Shelley Winters, who, you know, uh, goes for a swim. Uh, and then, yeah, as they, but as they travel down the Ohio River on this boat, this is where the film becomes expressionism. Uh, there, yeah. there are so many shots that are like Robert Mitchum on a horse in profile and the sky is white and everything else is black. And it might as well be a shadow puppet. Yeah. This is also when the film starts using like, lots of imagery of animals. All of the shots of him going down the river, wide shots from the like, bank looking at the boat, there'll often be an animal in the foreground. Every time they come back to that sort of shot, it'll alternate between being like a prey animal and a predator animal. Like when they first get in the boat, there's kind of like superimposed like a, an image of a spider web. Then the next time it's like a frog. And then the next time it is, you know, like an owl and it's some bunny. And it just goes, then it's like a fox, and it goes back and forth between between all of those. They fall asleep uh, in the boat while Mitchum is kind of chasing, looking for them. Uh, he's singing hymns real loud and terrifyingly. Yeah. 
and he he has done before but it is just absolutely giving this character like his motif is him singing about how god is great yeah i love any movie that gets how creepy christian hymns are this and first reformed truly understand the horror of what those words in most of those songs mean yeah yeah this appealing to uh, otherworldly absolute power yeah to exert control through love is yeah an overwhelming threat mm. it's an incredible choice and like mitchum's got a voice on him too like there is something about how his his kind of tangled chords reverberate that it becomes almost subsonic it becomes like the awkward horror noise <laughs> there's something that makes your skin crawl mm. They go to the house of some woman who's giving out food to orphans, and they each get a potato, and then they just start eating these potatoes raw, which, of course, just made me think of a joke from the uh, Ship to Shore of Elrond Hubbard episode of the Andy Daly Podcast Pilot Project, where Paul F. Tompkins as the Astonishing Martin, a, a magician and debunker who has been brought onto Elrond Hubbard's ship, is talking about uh, why, why he believes what he believes, and uh, he's asked if he believes in potatoes. And he says, of course I believe in potatoes. I've, I've held a potato in my hand. I've, I've eaten it like an apple. <laughs> I mean, Lauren Lapkus playing a character called Lettuce <laughs> says, uh, it's weird. You're weird and bad. <laughs> but they, yeah, they fall asleep in the boat one night and, and they are woken by a woman uh, named Rachel, who is Lillian Gish, this kind of ornery grandmother figure who we find very quickly runs kind of a household of foundlings. Some orphans, but also some children who were, like, given up by their mothers because their mothers needed to work and... Yeah. yeah. Strays. Mm. And she seems uh, very judgy of these mothers. And she's very judgy of the kids as well. Like, yeah. when we meet her, she's like, get out of there. I'm going to cut a switch. Come on. And then she's... Yeah, she starts hitting them with, with like, a branch immediately. Um, and then it comes to her giving them a bath and John gets up and runs away. Like, he, he runs behind a bush and she also yeah. runs behind a bush. I mean, you just... You see her, like, spanking him for, like, a while. She takes them into town. It's a farm. They're selling apples and eggs. Yeah. And you see that she is kind of inexplicably beloved by her community. And you realize that the love is not inexplicable because she is, like, she does the right thing, but not always the kind thing. And and she's looking after these people and hoping to give them their best lives. Also, because it's a movie from 60 years ago, about a time 30 years before that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But no, but like, there is like, there is something in that. And, and the the oldest girl, her name is Ruby. Yeah. Ruby's like 14, 15, something like that. I thought she was more like 16, but who can yeah, tell? Yeah. Kids these days, they're so young looking. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. They're, they're all, they're all, she's off looking at boys. Yeah. It's like uh, The Last Battle, the final, uh, uh, the final Chronicle of Narnia book where all the Pavensis go back to Narnia except for Susan because she's forgotten about Narnia because uh, she got too interested in uh, boys and lipstick. And then at the end of the book, you find out that uh, actually all the Pavensi children uh, died in a train crash uh, as they came back to Narnia. And now uh, Narnia is dying and they're going to like heaven. And so the implication of that, of course, is that uh, Susan is going to hell because she like lipstick and boys too much. Well, all the other kids get to go to heaven. I think that is a... fucked book. (laughs) No, I don't see any problems with it. It should be illegal to let Catholic morality anywhere near children. I don't think we can start legislating. Well, I fucking can. Okay, start a political party. What would it be called? It would be called the No Catholics Party. (laughs) Okay, great. Who are your voting base? 
Protestants, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's a bit harsh to Ruby, um, uh, the character in Night of the Hunter, because she, yeah, she, she's off being a bit curious. I don't think the film was judging her. I think it kind of is. The year after she was in this, the actress who played Ruby was in a movie called like The Runaway Daughters. Uh, we read the plot synopsis of earlier, and it seems like it's about a young girl runs away from home, and then uh, uh, because she like likes boys, and then a bunch of awful shit happens to her, and she deserves it. Night of a Hunter isn't going to like that level with how it's judging her character, but I think it, it still definitely takes Mrs. Cooper's side on on this stuff. Because my read on that, um, I, I agree that we should definitely take into account actors' other work around the time, and that's why I I can't stand for Indiana Jones because. That man is the president. Yep. He should not be in such dangerous scenarios. Yeah, I can't believe that he'd be looking for the Holy Grail when he was too busy on the Mosquito Coast. <laughs> I witness. Because um, when we see Ruby's, when when they, they go to the shop, they're given in some uh, some apples, and, and it's like, "Where's the sixth thing?" Oh, Ruby's gone off with it. And what? And like, there there are two boys, and it's 1930, so they're being like. Ah, chewing gum, yeah, see? Yeah, they're, they're, they're leaning up against a wall, yeah. and they're like, Hey, it's Ruby. You want to go talk to her? Yeah. Oh, we'll see her on Thursday. Hmm. If her old lady thinks she's coming over for sewing lessons. Oh, but, oh, oh. And she's there just kind of like... <laughs> but it's not... She's not being demure. She's being, like, entertained and enjoying. And I think it is... Like, because I read this interaction as a positive thing. Like, I think the film likes it. Like, that's a weird phrase. Yeah. I think the film thinks it's good, and I think we're supposed to think it's good. And that, it, that's not what I get from the scene, but... He goes back to see the two boys a few days later, yeah. and when one of them comes over to talk to her, Robert Mitchum just, like, gets in between them, basically chases the boys off, takes inside a different ice cream parlor. Did not happen this time, but I remember my first time seeing it, because we have, at this point, not seen him for maybe 15 minutes. Yeah. Maybe. And it is just a casual mid-shot that he just strolls into, like, an extra. And it's genuinely an incredible scare. So he chases off the, the two lads and puts the moves on Ruby. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful bits of repetition because you hear him using some of the same language he got Shelley Winters with. Yeah. And it, it is horrifying. And, and to me, it is the scene is about uh, a man taking like dumb puppy child affection, dumb puppy love, if you will. And distorting it and making it bad rather than it being bad in the right, first yeah. place. And that's why I think it's important that that first scene, I think we're supposed to like. Right. But I also understand why you wouldn't. And it works and that's very troubling because of who Robert Mitchum is, both within and without of the film. You kind of buy the, the, the weight of his personality. And, and so she, she gives up unknowingly that, that John and Pearl are with Rachel. And so he goes to the house and puts his hand on the on the banister, and it says "hate" on it. And it he tries to do his his love and hate monologue again. Yeah, and and Lillian just just like cuts him off in, in the middle of it. Well, and and she cuts him off because she turns to John and goes like, "What's up?" And he can't say anything. He's too frightened. And she immediately understands, like yeah. she has an un- intuitive understanding of right and wrong, and is like. Get the fuck out of here. He goes to try and get the doll, which is lying on the ground next to the step. John grabs the person, like, scurries under the house. Yeah. And then Robert Mitchum pulls out his knife and starts trying to go into the house. Yeah. And, and then Lillian Gish goes inside, gets a shotgun, she comes out and uh, chases him away with it. Yeah. And then there's kind of like a mini siege. Mm. 
through the night while he's outside. Lillian Gish stays up through the night. Lots of just great shots of her in a rocking chair with a gun, totally silhouetted, listening to him sing and then singing back and then singing together. Yeah. At the end of the scene, Ruby comes out onto the porch with like a candle. The entire like inside of the, inside of the porch is illuminated, and and the outside kind of goes dark. She talks to Lillian Gish for a while, and then when Lillian Gish like realizes what the like light difference is doing, she blows a candle out, and then he's gone from the yeah. spot where he was outside. Uh, great. Yeah. He eventually like forces his way inside the house. She shoots him, and he makes these these kind of like, horrified like animalistic screeching noises. So he he runs off the barn she calls the police and says uh there's a crazy dude hiding in the barn and uh then in the in the morning the the police arrive in the intervening time that because that they know who it is and they know he murdered the mum. yeah which is like you can kind of piece together as a sequence of events but also is very much i think this film's staginess and associational and kind of expressionistic storytelling rearing its head again and like within the film you just you buy it yeah um but it is just it's what happened yeah because it's what happened yeah and so yeah he he comes like stumbling out of the barn he's covered in blood he's still holding the knife the police like knock him to the ground they're pointing guns on him again and they're handcuffing him and it's, it's a doubling of the scene at the beginning with with the father being held on the ground and it cuts back to john and again he is like he is unable to take and he starts like Screaming like no, no, like leave, leave, leave him alone. And John picks up the the doll filled with all the money, and he runs over and just starts like hitting. He just starts hitting Harry with it and shouting like, "Take it, take it. We, we don't, we don't, we don't want it." It's an incredible image. Yeah. Once he's shot, Mitchum turns into an animal, and when he comes out of the barn, he's writhing like an angry lion. Yeah. He runs away yelping, and it is just that thing of revealing that he's not a person. That when you scratch. The Robert Mitchum star persona, what you reveal underneath is not a person, but a beast. Yeah, to, to restate my point, I think that is a, a case of just incredible directing. I don't think it was Robert Mitchum's offer to be like, oh, when you shoot me, I'm going to be like, while I run away. Yeah. I think that was old Chuck Lawton being like, hey. And that moment, the moment of John being unable to take it, the doubled moment of uh, seeing another father taken away and, and reacting negatively is such a complex moment. He's kind of doing it despite himself. Man, it's good. Yeah, so it, it cuts from the scene where Harry gets arrested to the trial where, uh, where John, John refuses to identify Harry. He's asked repeatedly by the lawyer, is that the man who killed your mother? We just turn and look at him. Yeah. And Harry refuses to do it because all killing is an abomination. Even though he hates this fucking man, who murdered his mother, he refused to be a part of condemning him to death. Howard. No. <laughs> nah. And that kid's performance in that moment, because everything Finn just described is in his performance, and that a kid this young is doing that much is like a testament to the director working them and a testament to the kid. Yeah. The, the two things we get in parallel, I th- pretty close to parallel. Yeah. This family having a kind of norm- a normal Christmas, she's got them all presents, the implication being with the money at the same time yeah the two ice cream store owners uh genuinely like boo lynch him lynch yeah. him it, 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 it's supposedly the wife uh, ice cream store owner yeah. who was like who for the rest of the movie was like the the biggest supporter of robert mitchum she she, she was the one who like uh, who encouraged shelly winters to to marry him every time something weird happened 
she she was on who was like is isn't he so good now now she is standing up in her courtroom screaming lynch him lynch him i mean leading a lynch mob through the streets when she sees lily and gish and the and the kids at a diner she leads the crowd and like and shouting at them and booing them we're like you didn't you you didn't identify him ah. yeah it's a nightmare it, it's a riot it's the mm. seething mass of people i i think that there's a very deliberate turn towards like the and like an interesting thing is that you see Mitchum throughout the film attempt to evoke like religious fervor in people mm. and, and it only ever occurs in terms of solemnness and, and self-hatred this is the action where he gets the people together the most in kind of the most religious way possible a, yeah. a riot and it is distinctly uh, horrifying and, and, and bad and again like a distinctly complex thing yeah. to express the, the film is condemning this riot as much as it is condemning well not as much as it's condemning uh wife murder because that i think is much worse uh and, and there are many good reasons to riot that's just you know isn't yeah, one like, of them yeah but lynch mobs aren't a good version of a riot unless it was like let's go watch the straight story guys i gotta tell you saw, saw the straight story recently in the theater not a lot of people at that screening no Incredible movie. Not 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 a lot of people going yeah. out to see that one. Walt Disney presents yeah. the straight Lynch story. <laughs> yeah, his G-rated film. Yeah, the only it- one he doesn't have a writing credit on. It's Christmas Day. Uh, Lillian Gish is in the kitchen cooking up some dindons. All the kids have bought her a present. Yeah, they've all made her something, and I think each one of them has made her a different pot holder. That's right. And, but then John uh, hasn't got anything for her, so he walks out of a room. He walks over to a fruit bowl, he gets an apple, and he wraps it in a doily and uses a peg to, like, close it up or whatever. Yeah. And then he hands it to her, and she's like, oh, this is the best present of all. Which, I don't know if it is. Yeah, it is, because it's like, I am a part of this family. I'm giving and receiving love. It's symbolic. And also, maybe Lillian Gish is playing a Shinigami. Yeah, she just loves apples. She And she tells them where their presents are. Uh, and they go get their presents. She has gotten John a, a watch. Yeah. She's gotten Ruby like a brooch. Yeah, which is like a brooch that he promised to buy her, Harry, the, the Reverend. Pro- uh, yeah, I think so. The the watch is like one that John was looking at in like one of the first scenes of the movie. But but when he when he's looking at the watch, he's like, wow. And she's like, yeah, it's a real loud ticket. And I'm, I mainly got it so that there's someone around here who actually knows the time. And mm-hmm. he's like, Better, it's the best watch I've ever had. And she's like, well, I can't have you with bad watches. And then he leaves. And then she looks into the camera and says, that's all, folks. While they are opening the presents, she does a monologue to right. herself or to God and kind of yeah. to us. Yeah, she, she like looks sort of past the camera. Yeah, she, she does a whole thing about like, oh, children, we... Bearing their burden. There's such a heavy burden that we place on children. They, they bear it with such strength and fortitude. She's yeah. doing that sort of thing. Yeah, children abide. Yeah, yeah. For me, that moment is about someone being like, I I welcome and I love people by letting them being part of a family and a community and giving them worth and value rather than control and destruction. Um, And I think it's an incredible way to end a film. In, in being like let's care about kids because it, it's also like her point slightly earlier while they're opening presents is like kids go through some hard shit yeah and they abide they weather it um and i think it's real cool 
Yeah. And and then the Carol Carol Reed film The Fallen Idols about. Yeah. Yeah, no, and like that's good. Yeah. But this is like I love this film. Right, yeah. I think this is like a, a gold star all time. Like this is a film where I'm like I could understand myself one day being like, Oh, it's the best film ever made if we only had to save one film. And this is a view that has only grown recently as I've gone and really engaged with Charles Lawton. Mm. Because I think Charles Lord is, is a generational actor and, and skill. And, and like, I connect very personally with his mission, which is like, I will find monsters and then I will find the humanity in them. Like, what beauty is in the, the ugliest of things. And yeah, because you, 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 you just wish someone would find the humanity in you, a monster. I mean, I was going to leave that implicit, but like, actually, <laughs> yes. <laughs> My 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 sincere answer to that is yeah. Like it's not for nothing that I answered that. Who would play yourself in a biopic of your right, life yeah. with Charles Lawton? Who who would play you? I I have no idea. Can I put someone uh, out there? Sure, Norton or a stretched Thomas Shankster. Who? Thomas Shankster, the kid from Love Actually. But yeah, no, I look at Charles Lawton uh, uh, as the this man who. Uh, understands monstrosity and looking at this film is something that is not about coaxing a Charles Lawton performance out of someone, but is about building a film that operates in the same way, which is that you have this monstrous face, which is Robert Mitchum with love and hate on his knuckles, yeah. right? Um, kind of punching and yelling his way through the world, revealing himself just to be an animal, but the real humanity in it is these two kids, and John especially, who still, despite the fear and violence and death, just desperately want a family, desperately want a father, and it is just like, I, I think it's an incredible achievement. We haven't talked enough about Stanley Cortez, who shot it. Oh, oh right, uh, um, yeah. Who shot The Magnificent Amberson, shot The Three Faces of Each, shot Shock Corridor and The oh, Naked right. Kiss. Yeah. There's this incredible sense of light and dark in the film. Mm. And that the touchstone you want to go to is noir, but it is much further than that. Yeah. It, it, it is much starker than that. And it does this incredible job of l- looking stunning at every moment, but also ex- like clearly telling the story and directing vision. You know, it, it doesn't get trapped the, the student film thing where every shot is beautiful and nothing makes sense. But it also expresses interiority so well. Like there's such a sense of life and feeling in how pictures look. And I, yeah, I just think it is an incredible look. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't love this movie as much as you do. I, I think yeah, it's like I, an eight out of 10 rather than a, than a 10 out of 10. Yeah. But yeah, this is one of like the best looking movies. Every shot of this movie is like the use of light and shadow is the only other person I think who like does it better would be babe. Fucking God, I love who shot the third man and uh, odd man. The moral complexity it presents within such a clean frame and such a straightforward narrative that gives it itself such life and interiority while still having like a cast of people who at points are two dimensional is, is why actors should direct films because they direct the whole film like it's a any individual aspect of this film if analyzed on its own you could possibly be considered slight and it is only through how you build and layer those things 
that you can show them as cracks against each other. Like, so the whole film's acting performance lands, especially, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? This film failed commercially and critically when it first came out to the point where, like, Lawton continued to act but less and never attempted to make another film. He took the failure very personally. Yeah. I think that is a massive loss because if this is your first film, what do you build to other to other things? So I guess I'm saying it's sound. I I would I would also agree that it is sound. Yeah, and and right. also just check out Charles Lawton and and other things. He's yeah. great. He's, he's he's real cool. He is, and he seems like a cool dude. Like, uh, he he was married to the Bride of Frankenstein. So you were. yeah. I love Finn. Before you say anything, I want to say I love this film. Five out of five. And I will not bear anyone holding an opposing view at all. Like, honestly, we're going to fall out a little over the fact that you merely think it's very good (laughs) and not one of the all-time greats. Now, would you like to hear a a one-star review of this film? God damn it, Finn, yes. (laughs) Why, every time. This is a one-star review of Night of a Hunter by Letterbox user Anthony... Bejarano, nothing but the cinematography works here. I've seldom wanted a movie to end more. The entire last 20 minutes makes no sense. End of review. Okay, I just let me have this Anthony. His top four films uh, one of them is a Mike Nichols film Oh, The Graduate? Nope. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. It's a good one. It's a goodie. His second is a Nolan. Oh give me uh, an oblique clue that will make it entertaining audience listening at home. Uh, you don't like it. Ah, Interstellar. Yep. The third one is a Bogdanovich. A Last Picture Show. No. The Cat's Meow. No. The Scruble Comedy. I, 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 Peter Bogdanovich was very close friends with Orson Welles. Nope. With Sybil Shepard, eh? Nope. What is it? Uh, it's with Ryan O'Neill. Oh, Paper Moon? No, it's the other one. Blue Moon? Barbara, Blue Lagoon? With, with Barbara Streisand. Uh, Yentl? <laughs> What's up, Doc? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I would never have gotten there. Anyway, uh, and then number four is a movie that uh, very famously uh, did not win Best Picture. Pulp Fiction. No, did not win. Be- oh, did- is it uh, La La Land? Yeah. Like my issue with La La Land, and to a lesser extent, Whiplash, is not that they are bad. It is that they are fun popcorn films. That everyone takes far too seriously. And it is just like, no, La La Land is just a nice fun musical. We don't need to pretend that it's about fucking life or whatever. Let's just like, just have some fun. My problem with La La Land is that uh, I wish the songs were better and more memorable. Because I like everything about La La Land, except I can uh, never remember a song after it's finished. Except Except for one of the songs, which has a nice melody. Not enough. If you're going to make a musical, write good songs for it. Just a little tip there. Then yes, I like science fiction. Who, I like who doesn't? And many people. Well, they they sound like fools. No, some people are allowed to have different views. I love romantic comedies, and for a long time I've thought, or as we call them, comedy romantics. Yeah, yeah, comroms. Um, and I've always thought or romantic romantics. <laughs> I would love to combine these two <laughs> genres into a film that could be enjoyed for all the family. Yep. 
as long as every member of that family is ludicrously horned up. I, I started working on a screenplay uh, uh, towards this end. I'm, I'm excited about, you know, making work. Yeah. It's called Femalian. <laughs> uh, it's a softcore porn series from Full Moon Entertainment. No, it's called Best Mandroid. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's called uh, My Other Cars UFO. Oh, no, it's called uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Mars. Open brackets. Martian love song. <laughs> Close brackets. No. Called My Student Is An Honours Alien. <laughs> my student? My child. Fuck. My child is an honours alien. No, it's called Star Wars Episode 10, Sith Happens. No. Uh, it's called Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's An Alien. Mm. Called Over Her Dead Body, Reanimated Through Science. <laughs> and, and so I started typing, I wrote, you know, exterior, space, uh, space shit happens. And then interior, scientist does some science shit, alien meets, they fall in love. Because no one's done that. Nope. And Clippy turned up in the corner of my screen. That bastard. And said, hey, it's me, I've come over from Word to Final Draft. The ruiner of dreams since 1998. I can't help but notice that you have written the exact script for 1988 American science fiction comedy family film, My Stepmother is an Alien. Uh, And so what could I do but watch it? And let me tell you, this film in which Kim Basinger is an alien and falls in love with Daniel Aykroyd. Yeah. Um, a man who I don't think even loves himself. But but he but he does love aliens. That is a thing we know about Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised to see no crystal skulls yeah. full of vodka in this film. Whereas Night of the Hunter's relationship with parents is a fraught and complex thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it shows many shades and it, and, it, and it also is honest about the fact that there's a desperate need for protection and care uh, at the center of it. Whereas I, I thought my stepmother as an alien would present an interesting counterpoint to that by in some way, because the title tells me, you know, this is going to be about the relationship between an alien stepmother and uh, introducing Alison Hannigan as, as Jessie. Yep. Dan Aykroyd's widow scientist's daughter. When I saw the title, I thought, oh, is this a prequel to be to, to the porn film My Stepbrother is an Alien? <laughs> when, I, when I first saw the title, I thought, fuck yeah, this is going <laughs> to rule. <laughs> and, and well, it's directed by Richard Benjamin. Fuck yes. And yeah, that Richard Benjamin, which is to say, Finn, who's Richard Benjamin? <laughs> uh, Richard Benjamin was a, like, was like a big actor in the 70s. He, he, was, uh, he, he was the lead of The Last of Sheila which is a really good uh, mystery film. He was the lead of Westworld. He was in a bunch of stuff in the 70s. He was like a, he was like a big guy in, in like Hollywood films in the 70s. Yeah, I thought there would be some comparison to be made in how it represents family and being a child. Mm-hmm. And like the severe majority of the relationship between Alison Hannigan uh, as Jesse and, and uh, Kim Basinger as Celeste is... The scene where Alison Hannigan scenes Celeste drinking batteries as they were cans of Coke. Because she's an alien. <laughs> she's an alien. So, she, so she doesn't eat regular food ever. She, <laughs> and she also doesn't sleep. She just drinks battery fluid. <laughs> yeah. Like the juice boxes. Um, Maybe it's some D battery she got from a hardware store. Maybe it's a car battery, but she will just 
lift out of all the cars on the street. Well, that that's <laughs> the point is. And then a second time later, Alison Hannigan sees her drinking from a car battery. These are the only two times in the film yeah. we see her drinking from batteries. So it is like, does she? Is, is it a Schrodinger's cat thing? Does she only drink from batteries when children are watching? Because she has psychic or like, powers. Was this film originally three hours long and they had to cut out a bunch of stuff? <laughs> this film was first pitched in the early 80s. By um, Jericho Stone, credited in the film simply as Jericho, yep. as a drama allegory about child abuse. Uh, f- three writers later, it right, was, because it's about a child like not being believed about, like yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, but like the whole of their relationship is Alison Hannigan sees her drinking batteries, and then was like, "Dad, I saw her drinking batteries," and then Dan Aykroyd's like, uh, "I'm, I'm too busy getting my fuck on," <laughs> like. And, and, and then later it's like, oh, she's an alien. Dad, she's an alien. No, she's not. Oh, we're a happy family now. Mm. And, and it is, what does your Dan Aykroyd take? I I don't know. Because I feel like m- most people who have a Dan Aykroyd take were like, you know, like around to experience the, begin- the like, beginning of Saturday Night, of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Like, oh, I've, I've seen Ghostbusters. I've seen Ghostbusters 2. Uh, I've seen most of Blues Brothers. What about Blues Cone Brothers two thousand? No, I haven't. Uh, I've seen Codeheads and I've seen this. Like I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I've never really like explored Dan Aykroyd either as a like actor or a filmmaker that that much. And so I, I don't have a take on him really. I, 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 I enjoy him a lot in Ghostbusters, but I think everything else I've seen him in uh, hasn't really uh, lived up to that. He, yeah. But I, I, I would like to see nothing but trouble someday. We'll do it. It'll be on yeah, the list. Yeah, we'll, right. we'll, we'll figure out a thing to pair that with. My, yeah, Dan Aykroyd, I... Or as I call him, Dan Hackroyd. I, like, he was in a lot of, like, as you say, a lot of things that I was shown when I was young, so I liked. Yeah. You boast Gusters, Driving Miss Daisy, his Oscar-nominated performance in Driving Miss Daisy, and uh, Blues Brothers. And I look back now, and I just feel like, because yeah, I don't have that grounding of of knowing who his persona is, and like he, 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 even though he is Canadian, there is there's still something like very American about his entire like career and and about like, his and about his persona, which I think like really doesn't fully translate, like especially outside of something like Ghostbusters. Well, and I th- I think we have the perfected version of Aykroyd, which is Tom Hanks. Um, yeah. And like this film, oh yeah, like yeah, they they, they both started off in, in the like sort of like same sort of stuff, yeah. And then yeah, Tom Tom Hanks evolved, and and Aykroyd just kept on trying to recapture well, that, that type of comedy. But like the first steps of Hanks's evolution was going from doing comedy to doing romantic comedy with mm. Splash, and like this is post that, yeah. And I think is very clearly consciously trying to give Aykroyd a splash. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very notable that he is very, almost all of the jokes are on Basinger, and of course John Lovitz is there, because, you know, it's a film from the 80s, so John Lovitz has to be there. And like, I love John Lovitz. I love well-deployed John Lovitz. But so much of this, like, I love the critic. Just rewatch the mm. critic, and the 60% of jokes in that show that are still p- acceptable politically are hilarious. And it's just unfortunate that the other 40 are mm, hate speech. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, mm, but like m- most of his jokes in this movie are just like, 
seeing an attractive woman and then going, humana, 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 hoo, hoo, hoo. Wouldn't you like to see John Lovett's acting a scene where he jizzes himself to death? Like, I would very much like to see a scene where John Lovett orgasms and enjoys it. It goes on too long. He starts concerned. It starts to hurt him and then ultimately kills him. Like, I think John Lovett's would kill that scene, yep. you know? Is he on cameo? <laughs> <laughs> like, they distinctly don't give Aykroyd go. He gets a pair of socks out of the oven at one point. But, like, that's... And he's like, oh, the drive, I've been cooking them since yesterday. Yeah. Um, and it is just absolute horseshit. Um, and, like, a lot... The comedic engine of this is that Kim Basinger from LA Confidential... Oh, Okay, uh, and, and many and many other things uh, is, is an alien, sexy alien on Earth. Dan Aykroyd is a, a scientist who works at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life. He does uh, some sort of experiment at the beginning of the film with like a colocrocope, just like a I not just, just like a like, made up science bullshit. I thing. absolutely do not wish I, to give this film the respect I, of remembering this no, level of detail. I, I, I about it. Uh, so, <laughs> so they're, they're doing some sort of experiment where, like, if if the if the clogloscope goes over three hundred bluepons, the whole thing will explode or something. And he's warned by his boss, "Don't let this happen." And but they're shooting some beams into outer space yeah. uh, to try and make contact with like uh, with like other galaxies. And uh, they're doing this during a lightning storm. And uh, their giant satellite dish gets hit by lightning. And they're using the lightning to power the clue to power the clue bonds to make the beep boop noises. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, then something goes wrong and like uh, a piece of electricity, a piece of machinery malfunctions and it goes up to like, well, it's up to 700 blue bonds. And then they, they are able to send this message faster than the speed of light. And it goes to uh, uh, someone's uh, foot in space. Well, no, the, the, and the, not the foot. Um, this bit I like, because it's kind of 80s retro tech, they're tracking how the signal is on two CRTs, and yeah. to show that it has gone further uh, um, on the map, on the CRT tube TV, uh, the the map doesn't get smaller, it's so big it goes onto another TV, Yeah, and there's like lots of nice 80s, 70s, like, burned onto the film stock lighting and, yeah. and like scientist and John Lovitz is there at, at a party being like, ah, oh, I'm okay. What's going on? And it's my Pacino playing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, it, it's not bad. And then we cut to, no, it's like, it's fine. You know, it's yeah. entertaining. Like I can understand, I could understand it. Like if I had seen that sequence when I was like a 10 year old, I would be like, Fuck, I'm into this. Mm. Like, I am a child and I get it. And then it cuts to, to, to Hannigan's, uh, Alison Hannigan, her first work before mm. she, uh, was, uh, the best actor on Buffy. Um, and, and then the best actor on How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother. And then the best actor on, she's on something now. Anyway. Well, she's also the best actor in the American Pie movies. Ah. Uh, Unless you're a massive Jason Biggs fan. No, nah, I just love Stifler. You love Stifler? Yeah. Um, oh, she's the host of Fuller. Yes, she is. Working with Penn and Teller, everyone's dream. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I say that as a massive Penn and Teller yeah, fan. No, no, yeah, no, no, no. And yeah. like, I, I do not like. I, I don't love them as much as you yeah, do. Yeah. But it, it's a Knight of the Hunter situation. <laughs> like, I do. Yeah, that they, they are also. But just the idea that everyone <laughs> is like one day. 
and, and we we meet her. She's trying to shoot hoops, and she loves basketball, but she just can't shoot a hoop. Yeah, she can't dunk. And like Alison Hannigan uh, is like like there is an adorableness to her that has sustained through her whole life. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, and not in a diminutive way, but like there is the sense of her like. She is such a fucking trier, but it is like a rabbit pushing a rock up a hill, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and this scene lands that so well. So up until this point, I'm like, this might be fine. Then, uh, it cuts to space, then a spaceship, and then in a white void, what do we see? Uh, a, a lady's foot. And, uh, how long does it hold on this shot of a woman's foot? About 17 years. Yeah. It's just a shot of a foot, which, like, slowly, slowly, like, yep. pulls out, or the foot comes, like, more into frame. Yeah. Uh, and so you're just seeing, like, you're just seeing, like, more and more of the, like, kind of, like, calf area, and it's going up a leg. And then you see like, a hand, like, reach down with a stocking and pull some nylons up the leg. It is, it, this, this shot goes on for over a minute. Yeah. It is, I think, the single horniest non-explicit shot I've ever seen in a movie. I- it is insane. And like over the top of it is like is uh, Kim Basinger and a woman called Anne Prentice who who plays the like voice of uh, her computer or whatever. Kim Basinger and and Anne Prentice talk about like you have to be the most beautiful woman on earth. Well, it's just a shot of her fucking foot rolling on nylon stockings. Yeah, and it's real weird. Movies these days, I think, are like far too puritanical, especially American movies and especially like mainstream American movies. Yeah, incredibly puritanical. If, if you're seeing an R-rated movie, it's only going to be because of, like, people getting their heads exploded. Yeah. But, but like, movies back in the fucking 80s were just, in, were just insane how much ridiculously, like, like fuck-drunk stuff they'd show in a in a ostensibly family movie. Um, I think an interesting thing, especially looking at, like, children's media from other countries, is how they will acknowledge more that, like, sex and drugs and alcohol exist as like a thing adults do yeah it's like a fact of the world as opposed to like uh marketing and it does feel so isolated now like the idea that the biggest expression of love captain america can have at the end of the film is dancing with someone it is so pointedly sweet that it makes you be like oh this is how sanitized we've got yeah. like the fact like um but this film, yeah, it goes way in the other direction. And like Kim Basinger, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm alone in, in saying, uh, ch- ch- total smoke show. I mean, did, didn't, didn't, uh, Chet Hanks just like, just like a week ago, tell people not to use that term anymore? Uh-huh. That's probably why I used it. Yeah, it was one of his rules for White Boy Summer. Yeah, I'm, was, not- uh, no more calling women smoke shows. It's played out. Uh, I would just like to very firmly announce. That I you're 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 not participating this year. Oh, not just that. I'm st- I stand against like the thing is, hot boy summer or white boy summer. Sorry, it's not. Yes, yeah, white boy summer. Yeah, and we should really be thinking about the mu- the the lo- the logical, smart, nice way to do it, which is fat boy winter. Time to hibernate. That's the tagline. But, um, and. and the comedy engine of this film is Kim Basinger, impossibly attractive person, someone who looks like a living Photoshop filter, um, doing strange things. Yeah. Like she's offered hors d'oeuvres or an ashtray and she eats a cigarette, but 
Mm, yeah. She sings the Popeye the Sailor Man theme song. Yeah. Uh, because in the time before she gets to Earth, she like learns about Earth pop culture so that she can, so she can communicate with people. And then she just thinks that people communicate by saying catchphrases, which is uh, like if she'd waited another 30 years, she'd be correct. Yeah. And, and <laughs> like, like it, how it, rude. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if she, if she, if she came to her today, it, dude. Yeah. She, she could just walk around doing a full house and like Big Bang Theory catchphrases. And we'll be like, oh, I know what she's talking about. Bazinga, no, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Bazinga, indeed. IMDb trivia says that Shelley Long was the first choice for this role. And um, I... Well, Shelley Long from uh, Don't Tell Her It's Me, a.k.a. The Boyfriend School. <laughs> Very sad. Yeah. With, uh, with uh, Steve Gutenberg as uh, New Zealand Lothario uh, Lobo Moringue. <laughs> and um, I think... I don't think the bones of this film are bad. Uh, no. I I think that a film with this concept, and I think it is a lot of like it is it is the lines are fine. It is the coloring in that is the problem. Yeah, like how it chooses to build structure, the bits of relationships it chooses to focus on, and, and I think one of those is that I think um basing it like I'm about to say she's not a comedian, and, and that will sound like I think she's bad, and I don't think she does a bad job i just she's not a comedian it's not funny enough yeah like it's 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 not a failure but it is like you need someone who not there's a scene where her and dan Aykroyd are kissing and over her shoulder over his shoulder there's the screen of like what kissing is yeah and it's showing scenes from like from like 40s movies and and it's showing like like animal mazing rituals and yeah. showing all sorts of stuff, and she's she's copying everything that she sees on on the on the screen. And she does a good job of it. And like the scene is long and has no music, and you're like, oh, they're planning on this being a laugh, right? But like the very fact that she has not spent decades of her life the way crafting like what what is the perfect weirdness, yeah, like that a comedian brings you for this kind of material. There are many circumstances in which non comedians do great in comedy. This yeah. is not, I'm, I'm just talking about this circumstance. And like that, I think is a big one. I think asking us to buy like Aykroyd having the, the Tom Hanks and Splash role, uh, does not work for him because he, I just don't feel charmed by him and he feels there's something really sleazy. Yeah. A- and then the film just begins to really focus on their sex life. Yeah. In a um, way that feels very un, that's not uncomfortable. Like, it's not, there's nothing in it where I'm like, this is problematic. But there's just heaps where I'm just like, 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 sex is hilarious. I frequently laugh during it and cry and vomit. It's, have you seen The Exorcist? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is so, it is, it is, it feels in this like such an easy shortcut to, like, there's, there's a joke where she's like, I need to look at what sex is. And her magic handbag, which was showing her the kissing stuff, is like, this is what sex is, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then it like prints her out a VHS copy of Debbie Does Dallas. And then like Debbie Does Des Moines. And then like Debbie Does Dusseldorf is, Do- the, third is the third one. And like the joke there is just like sex. Well, <laughs> no, well the, 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 the actual punchline of that is, well, Debbie sure does get around. <laughs> but, but you know, yeah. and, and then she learns about sex and, and they have sex and, uh, it's great, but then the next scene is like, 
Alison Hannigan fixes herself breakfast, which is like a Pop-Tart with jam and maple syrup on it. And, and a can of Coke. And a can of Coke. And she, she cuts one of the Pop-Tarts in half and gives it to her dog. Yeah. Like, oh, that, that dog's organs cannot handle that. <laughs> that, that dog is fucked. Uh, but then, like... Uh, then, then, then Dan Aykroyd <laughs> comes, like, dancing into the room and his, his hair is all... Like, every single strand of his hair is, like, pointing directly upwards <laughs> yeah. or, or out. Yeah. And he's... He's he looks into like room. he's stuck his finger in his socket. Yeah, and he's just going like... And, 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 while and he's like wa- spinning around and stuff. <laughs> and and when we were watching, I made the joke, Oh, Dad, what were you up to? Oh, just fucking... <laughs> and then it is legit like... Uh, and then it's like, Oh, Dad, what were you up to? And he was like, I was kept up all night with this new lady. And it's like, Oh, no, so you are just like... Look, she she's thirteen now. I know. She, she is oh, old. God. She's old enough to learn about the world. Let's go over quickly that the scene that is there clearly to establish that maybe he needs to get closer to her mm. is when she's like, "Dad, look at me. Do you notice anything different, different about me?" And then he goes, "No," and he goes, "I'm wearing a bra for the first time," and it's just like. Oh, no. Oh, I understand why people are like, men should not write women. <laughs> then, of course, there's the uh, uh, incredible uh, generation-defining joke <laughs> of him saying, well, did you get the right uh, strap size? And her saying, it's cup size, Dad. And yes, A minus. <laughs> oh. uh, it was like, what are, what are you doing, Jericho? They, that immediate, she's like, I have to go away tonight because the signal has... Done something to the gravity on gravity, a planet, and, oh, and they wow. have to send another signal, and then she'll go back, of course. Um, and a, and she has a meeting with three uh, like projected spacemen who have who are wearing like nuns' habits, yeah, and like you've got to kill him and then get out of here. And her handbag, who's also her computer, is like, yeah, let's kill him. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. They all drink lemonade. The end. She decides to stay behind. They send the signal. That morning after they have sex, uh, Dan Aykroyd proposes to her because he's a maniac. And, like, this is the point of the film where it's like, the good pitch version of this film doesn't have an extended sequence of them hilariously boning. There's also a middle sequence before, like, uh, uh, after she's in the bathroom learning about what sex is and before they have sex, where she walks back into the room. And there was like two minutes of her, like in like a shift now, like walking in slow motion towards the camera, hair all around. She's like strutting and being all sexy, and is, there's like wind like blowing around and stuff, and just forever. It goes on forever. Well, and, and I, there's no reason for it to be in a children's movie. It is using the thinnest cloak of irony to evoke sexist imagery, yeah. and it it's not fun, and it's not funny, and it's also not like sexy either like it's not like it like it's the kind of thing where like if this film was actually as hot as it is horny if you know what i if you understand the distinction i'm making yeah um like you could be like you know the problem with my stepmother the alien is that you know that film's not really for kids but like you know like it's it's bound you know uh you wouldn't but you wouldn't call bound a family film no i mean Depends on the family. Seth Green is there for a scene. Yeah, he like like. He's, oh my god, it's hilarious. He's so tiny. He's yeah, got he's, massive braces. He's he's a he's a real short man, and you just get to be like, oh yeah, because like he he shows up to take to take Alison Hannigan on a date. Yeah, and he's like, oh, it's like I wonder when 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 they start working together again ten years after this, and they they start dating again and. 
in Buffy. Like, I wonder what that was like for them. Yeah. Because they have these, like, two scenes together in, in, in this movie when they, were, when they were both, like, nine. Yeah. Oh, oh. And he's sixth build. Yeah. No, no, for... not, not, a, not a lot of people in this movie. No, but also, like, a suspiciously high billing for yeah. him. And well, maybe we... there was a lot more with him, is what I'm saying. Juliet Lewis is Jesse's friend. Yeah, it's also, like, her first film role, right? But, like, they send the signal, uh, oh, Dad, she drinks batteries. No, she doesn't. Oh, she's an alien. Then it's solved very quickly. Well, there's also, like, a like massive, like, breakdown scene where Alison Hannigan is, like, screaming and crying. Oh, that's right. Which is, yeah. like... It's like it's too it's too intense for the movie. It, like like that 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 feels like a leftover from from the like child abuse allegory. But it's Dan Aykroyd's first day back at work, and Alison Hannigan is. Oh, she get because he's fired after the lightning strike, yeah. and then the bag using Carl Sagan's voice pulls using, up and using gets Harry him. Shearer doing a Carl Sagan impression <laughs> pulls up a boss and says, but, "I'm Carl Sagan. We want you to rehire." But Dan it's Aykroyd. just and it's just like a mash. Like as you can tell, it is like. It, it, things can be complicated, which is absolutely fine. But this just—it feels like it churns. It yeah. feels messy. It seems to play, take place both over a week and a day. It makes Dan Aykroyd seem like a fucking crazy person. It makes everything seem so rushed. The film could be the exact same length, but if they made it feel like it took place over like I don't know two months, even that would would make would make it feel like so much less like rushed. There is an interesting thing, and I can tell, like, in that they're like, you're, you're marrying her after a day? That's so fast. He goes, like, well, it was only a week with your mum. And the idea of him as this well-written romantic, mm. uh, and, and that she is someone who, where everything is so new to her, the idea that they are, like, suddenly in love is really interesting. But the problem is that we don't see them being suddenly in love. We see them being instantly fucked drunk. Yeah. Which is, like... An equally valid emotion to have, but pointedly different. And like the scene they should have instead of like comedy sex wiggles for dads to whack it to it is like a Nora Ephron fighting but agreeing, misunderstanding banter these people are in love scene. Yeah, more of him like like talking about like astrophysics and, and and like connecting on 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 that. Oh yeah, and, and which, which there is like a very tiny amount of. Uh, and because we need to buy it, uh, and I think that so much of this is we just don't buy it, and and that means that to the point where yeah, where Alison Hannigan is like, Dad, look, she's an alien. How did she change all the stuff in her room? She, I saw her drink batteries multiple times. There's an she iron. inverted gravity and put me on the <laughs> ceiling for ten minutes. <laughs> That's fucking right. That happened, and she is crying and like slightly red in the face, and it is the hysteria. The genuine hysteria of an upset child seeing injustice and pain in the world. Yeah, and, 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 and not being believed about it. And you, it is just like, it is, it's n- it, it is not funny. Mm. And it is too, when you haven't bought anything or suddenly having something that feels this real, you're like, well, this is all horrible. Yeah. Like, like the feeling I got in that scene is like, congratulations, Alison Hannigan, you were clearly going to be a star from this moment. Yeah. Because I think even devoid of knowing her future, when you look at this film, you'd be like, like, John Lovitz is fun to have around, uh, unless you just have him go homna homna. And like, Alison Hannigan is good. And like, Seth Green is an adorable, is adorable. Um, but it made me be like, how dare you film ask this of someone when you're not going to do any of the work 
around it. Yeah. And, and, it- and the, the, the entire like resolution to that scene is she runs out of her house and gets on her bike and, and bikes off down the road. And there's a big white shot where she's going around a corner and then a car comes out and it looks like she's about to get smashed by the car. But then Kim Basinger uses her magic handbag to make Alison Hannigan uh, phase through the car. They're like, oh my god, you, you, you revealed that you're an alien to save my life. And then they're all just friends from that point on. And Dan Aykroyd is like, oh, there's an alien? Oh. And then he doesn't particularly care and then they go and save the day or whatever. Yeah, and... Um, and the handbag turns evil and... Because yeah. because women be shopping, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, it's shite. Yeah, it's shite. You liked it uh, you, less than I did, but it, like, it, I'd say it is by like no means like one of the worst movies we've seen. No, no, no. I think there are a bunch of quite good jokes in it. Yeah, I think it is. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that it's is is out of step with its own intended tone. It is. Mm. I think like it's nice to see this amount of horniness in an eighties film where none of it is about like people tricking each other right, into yeah, sex. Yeah. yeah that's and they're like, I was very worried that when he was like, let's have sex. And she was like, yeah, as soon as I found out what that is, I was like, oh no, this is going to become like, let me show you. Yeah. Yeah. But no, she goes to, does research and is like, oh, that, I want to do that. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, it's it, like, it's, it's the way to play it. it. It is that so much of it is a mash and it's just not, like there is a very good, there's a good version of this film, yeah, and and it feels so apparent what the mistakes made along the way were that the um that merely getting like a a fun like if this was on TV and my child was like, can I watch this? I'd be like, I don't have a child, but sure, you're not like yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, it's no nowhere near the bottom of the list. It, it's like bad approaching fine. Kim Basinger playing an alien, like encountering Earth and having weird hijinks, and like this performance would work in a film that is not aiming for such clearly aiming for such a high laugh content. Mm. And yeah, it just. But so you like it? No. How much do you like it? Uh, I like it more than B movie. Uh, out of ten. Uh, like a four. What if I told you that there was someone out there that gave this a four star review? Four stars out of out of out of ten or out of a hundred? <laughs> yep, out of a hundred. No, out of five. Oh wow, Zico Trinity, <laughs> uh, who gave it four stars and a heart mm-hmm. on a social media platform, Letterboxd, and they write they've gone. My favorite bit of Ulysses is the the final the section of the final chapter that contains no grammar, yep. uh, and clearly in a reference to that Zico Trinity's review, it's the same. Okay, okay, I'll try and get this all out. Hmm. I grew up watching this. I would rent the VHS every few weeks when I was young because I enjoyed it so much. I've always loved the scene where it says your penis is a weapon and the eye opens up wide. Ha ha. I've always loved this movie and it has a really good cast and it isn't too great with CGI, but I overlook it. I just like watching the movie and not really trying to super judge it, but I feel eight out of 10 is a great score for this wonderful movie. It's funny, romantic, and I enjoy seeing it again. Here is the thing. I don't there I don't think there's much CGI in it and the special effects in it are John Dextra effect. Yes. I believe it's Dykstra. Dykstra. But like the UFOs like it is clearly on a small budget, which it yeah. did not even and, make and back. There, there, there are some like good miniature work with 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 the like 
with a giant satellite. Mm-hmm. The, the problems with the movie aren't like the effects or like how it looks or anything. I think I think Richard Benjamin did like perfectly acceptable job like of like directing a studio comedy. Yeah, it just could be. Yeah, there is just there's a film with this pitch that is yeah. um, iconic and huge and great. Now this is Eco Trinity. Are you interested in playing with me to guess their top four films on their box? Sure. Okay, one. It's not the host. Uh, is it the host? No, it's not the host. Right, there's multiple movies called the host. Yeah, not either of them. Not the host. The lovely bones. What has a host but isn't the host? The guest. You're moving further away. Uh, the TV show Bates Motel. No, you're further away. Is is it a Korean movie? Yeah. Oh, Parasite. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fine. Uh, it's a threequel from 1992. Uh, different name. It's not like a XX3, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's it, it's another shift in genre. First one was horror, then horror comedy, and this is more like comedy action. Uh, it's like it's like a Tremors movie, kind of, but not. Uh, it, it, does it have like a monster in it? I mean, Bruce Campbell probably is oh, a monster. The, the uh, Army of Darkness. Yeah, right. God, what, a, okay. what a what a film. The next is what I would call of his golden years, like his big era. The Paulie Shaw film no one talks about. It's not Biodome. Okay, um, it's not Encino Man. Okay, because those are the two I know. Yeah. This is the one with Carla Gugino. Okay, I do not know this. Good son-in-law. And the last one, uh, it's about, hmm, it is just hard to think of clues that are not, well, directed by someone called Tom Holland. All right. But not. No, the, the, the director. Yeah, yeah, the director. Uh, it is, it, it's spooky and spooky. Is it Adam's family? No. That's Sonnenfeld. Right, but it's like. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's about, there's, uh, uh, despite what its title says, I think it is both not for children and wasn't easy to make. Recent remake features toys heavily. Well, a toy. What, 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 what year is it from? 19. 88. Same year as my stepmother is an alien. Uh, features toys. Uh, well, a toy. A toy. There's a prominent toy. Beginning of a franchise. I uh, do not know. Um, I'm not sure if the lead character's name is short for child. Inaudibly Finn says, child's play. Yeah. There's a fucking lot of these. Yeah. How, how, how many of them is Jennifer Tilly in? So we can be behind you, Finn. Uh, who cares? You can find the show on Twitter at uh, ShiteSoundPod, or you can email us at ShiteSoundPod at gmail.com. Theme song is The Nux by Kazan Blam. Check them out on Bandcamp. Also, our website, ShiteAndSound.com. Where, where can people find you? On your various socialized media is at YouthAlives, U-T-H-R-L-I-B-E-S, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Don't use any of them, but if you do, follow me. Sign up for my newsletter at the Dean's List, bit.ly slash Youth Lives. What are you watching next week? We are doing a Billy Wilder double feature. Yeah, Wilder uh, and Wilder. We're doing a, 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 we are doing a 1950s Sunset Boulevard and a 1981's uh, Buddy Buddy starring, what is it, Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon, and Klaus Kinski. And Klaus Kinski. Uh, I have no idea what happens in this fucking movie. Yeah. But uh, 
I, I, I love Billy Wilder, and uh, I've, I've never seen Sunset Boulevard before. But uh, very, very, very excited for this double feature. If you like the show, tell your friends. Yeah, why not? Like and subscribe, share and enjoy. And that just leaves us to say, movies are good. Even bad ones. Go watch them. And also, that's how they give you ice cream. They just come up, they just kind of come up behind you. They just kind of get in real close, <laughs> and they make they, they make you hold the ice cream cone. And they get in real comfortable behind you, and they just put the scoop and then on uh, top of what the ice cream cone. Oh right, and I then thought- uh, you don't have to pay because yeah, you've already paid. <laughs> you, you you got two types of customers coming into coming into spoons. Yeah. There's, there's people who are new in town, you know, everyone makes a mistake once. <laughs> uh, and also there's, there's people who live in the town and realise this is the only place to get ice cream <laughs> and I'm horribly dependent on sugar now. And also, this is like the 20s, there's probably cocaine in this ice cream. I can't get enough of it. Okay, but then... We've, we've got the upper section of a downer section, <laughs> half, the, half the ice cream has cocaine, half of it has heroin in it. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> You're describing a dream. <laughs> the, yeah, that's... Okay. And what's wrong with way? So you're describing this as if it's a comic set piece, and you're doing a very good job of it. But the bit I'm losing yeah. is that often jokes have to be uh, stating something in a way that's slightly wrong, and you're of course stating this as if it's a good well, so, idea, and so, it is. Yeah. So because it's in, it's, it's in the twenties, and like a uh, little, little little Willie Burrows comes into the ice cream shop, and he 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 gets some of that hero and ice cream, and <laughs> Oh boy, his life's never the same again. Good. Sounds like he had a great time. Yeah. Then he, then he hung out with Jack Kerouac and he wrote Junkie and yeah. then he shot his wife in the head. Yeah. Yeah, it's all all Walt Spoon's fault. Well, and it's... William <laughs> Burroughs' wife would still be alive to this day. Okay, I don't care how much heroin you're on. I, I I I don't care how much heroin you're on. It's never a good idea to play William Tell. Just <laughs> just don't do it. I, I just think that the I uh yeah is it Spoon's fault that they got him addicted? Yes, but it's the government's fault for not providing him with methadone sorbet. <laughs>